David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It is 9.22 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is June the 10th, 2019. This is episode 105 of Bitcoin And. And if you didn't see some of my tweets over the weekend, um, or if you did and and you kind of want to know more of the story, um, I'm going to start out with uh, the death of my cat, juxtaposed to the addition of another cat to our family in roughly five hours' time. Uh, For the last starting, I guess this was not, this was going to be Friday night, um, we had found a kitten in our uh, outdoor shed and uh, that kitten had probably been there for a couple of days we heard it meowing like for three days straight and we thought it was at this house that was next door that is i I guess abandoned i'm not sure anyway it it didn't dawn on us that it was actually in our shed until uh, my wife pulled uh, some stuff out of the shed and then found this little cat uh, underneath a pallet uh, in there, and it was. I'm assuming it was hiding or whatever. In either event, this thing is. We thought it was eight weeks old, but uh, we're pretty much convinced that this poor little thing is about four weeks old, and it was covered with fleas and ticks. <clears throat> That's a problem. Okay, uh, the reason it's a problem is because you can't get fleas and ticks off of a cat simply by bathing it okay they they always in the infestation always comes back the only other option is to do a chemical treatment and every single flea and tick treatment you see for cats will tell you that you can't that you aren't supposed to use this that that chemistry on kittens under the age of 12 weeks sometimes it's they'll say 15 but you sure, certainly shouldn't use it on a you know two week old or four week old or eight week old cat. So what do you do? Right, you got a choice. You can let the cat die of a flea and tick infestation, you know, because these little guys they go quick once they get infested with with fleas and ticks. Uh, they go quick because they are so tiny and they only have so much energy that they can muster. And then they get dehydrated because they don't feel like drinking and eating. So, you, you, you know, and then you've got the, the, this bottle of chemistry telling you that if you apply it to the cat, it's going to kill it. Well, if you're going to kill it with chemistry or let, uh, let it be attacked by, you know, ticks and fleas, I'm going with the former option. So, yes, we apply and we've done this before. This is why we didn't even blink twice this time. Uh, we have two cats that we rescued, and they were both two weeks old. They were abandoned. I think their eyes were, maybe were open for like maybe a couple of days, um, or something like that, because it was like you know they just had this really. Uh, it, they were very 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 young, and it was the same choice then that we had to make Friday. 
and that was to go ahead and use the chemistry uh, on these uh, this treatment that you pick up from you know PetSmart or Petco or Walmart or whatever. And it worked. Um, it worked then, and it worked now. We had to apply it three times um, and let it sit each time for about ten minutes, and then a thorough rinse. Now, when I washed this guy off before we even hit this thing, you know, uh, hit this kitten with the chemistry, um, it washed off uh, dark brown and red. And that's when we were like, oh, crap, we got we got a flea problem. And sure enough, that's when we were like, oh, God. So after the third application, the uh, kitten is fine. And uh, his or her name, we're not sure yet. We we have a vet appointment uh, Wednesday. Uh him or her is fine, is eating, is healthy, is rehydrated, is feisty as, as anything I've ever seen is very, very vocal. So that part of the story is a success story. You know, we've, we've saved yet another kitten that's not going to be destroyed. And then we'll have, you know, as it gets old enough to either get spayed or neutered, depending on its sex, we will get that done because you shouldn't allow your if you can, don't allow your pets to breed because it causes these problems. Okay. Um, so we're high fiving each other a couple, you know, about three or four hours later. Um, we're, you know, happy with what we've done. We're, we're excited that the cat looks like, you know, the kitten's going to make a full recovery. And lo and behold, my cat of outdoor cat of seven years, uh, that, uh, made the transition with us from, from Lubbock to where we live now. Um, darts by at full speed runs under the car we pull him out he's dis- he's in trauma uh he's got blood around uh his tail the bit at the very base of his tail and he was being chased by two other cats so we figured it was a cat fight well he was displaying such trauma you know trauma that we were like this is something that we're gonna have to go get checked out took him to the emergency clinic and long story short they did an x-ray he had a uh, collapsed lung so what we're thinking is that he was in a cat fight the two cats chased him out into the street and he got run over by a car even though he didn't look like it uh but internally um he was he was gonna die no matter what so i had to put my cat down so this brings into question the balance of the universe. When my mom died, um, I was on shift. She was in hospice, and I was on shift, and it was my well, it was my shift, and she died on my watch. And you know, I was the youngest, um, and it you know, I think I was twenty twenty two or something like that. And it was still up, obviously upsetting losing your mom, especially when you're that young. Um, so the charge nurse or floor nurse, uh, took me outside when I was still smoking cigarettes and we smoked cigarette together. And while we were there, a woman was rolled out of the front of the hospital in a wheelchair holding her new baby. And it's all, it's almost as if the universe is just when it, it speaks to me of balance. It's almost as if it doesn't even try to hide its shit anymore. It's just naked. It's like, look, man, you're going to save this cat. And I'm going to take your other cat because there has to be some kind of balance. It's, it's bizarre. And I'm really, really bummed, man, because Eli, the outdoor cat that that passed away, um, was a great cat, man. He was, he was an awesome cat. He, he literally would fist bump me with his head. I just put my fist up and he would just knock his head into it. And I'm like, fist bump, you know? 
So I'm really going to miss that cat, but it's a bizarre dance that the universe forces us to play in with this balance thing. So be aware the universe demands balance and abhors a vacuum. All right. Okay. So with that out of the way, I want to talk about Justin Moon at underscore Justin Moon underscore on Twitter says, I made a learn to code class focused on Bitcoin, Mooniversity.io. I'm trying to leverage your interest in Bitcoin to make programming more accessible and interesting and to teach useful skills along the way. So when we go to Mooniversity.io, the splash page has learn to code Bitcoin edition, an introductory coding class for Bitcoin enthusiasts, and then there's a get started button. So when we click that, it says you will learn fundamentals of the Python programming language, VS Code, text editor, and the command line. Send then Another bullet point is send Bitcoin transactions from command line and from Python, another bullet point. Communicating with full nodes using RPC, another. Hash functions and proof of work, another. Digital signatures, verifying Bitcoin code installation, basic data analysis of Bitcoin's price history, math about Bitcoin's pay, uh, monetary policy, and then right underneath that says payment. The course costs $50, and then there's a Stripe, uh, a pay with Stripe button underneath that. So if you're interested, um, 50 bucks is not all that much money, guys. And I mean, being just even picking up just the fundamentals of Python programming by itself has got to be worth more than that. So uh, again, it's mooniversity.io, and this is Justin uh, Moon's... Um, I guess, public service. Um, and so I, I haven't looked at it cause I haven't clicked the pay button cause I just ran across it when I was setting up the show this morning. So, but, uh, uh, from what I understand from people that have taken Justin, uh, Justin Moon's class in person, uh, the guy knows what he's doing. So I'm, I'm, I feel, feel fairly okay telling y'all about this. Okay. Uh, next up is Malta gets warned by the EU. Oh, the, the scary EU. This is out of CoinDesk. It says Malta needs to grow. Uh, n- or sorry, Malta needs to up its AML game as crypto sector grows. Says the European Union. This is Daniel Palmer writing June fifth, twenty nineteen. Malta needs to increase its levels of anti money laundering policy <coughs> policing to match the growth in financial services, according to the EU. As reported by Malta Today, the European Commission said the island's jurisdictions moves moves to boost its cryptocurrency sector alongside sizable financial and gaming industries mean an effective AML regime is required. The comments came in recommendations made to the EU member nations regarding spending of EU funding. The commission said that it was positive that Malta's financial intelligence analyst unit, analysis unit had seen increases in budget and staffing levels and other procedures had been ramped up. However, it sees scope for government failings that could affect Malta's business prospects. The commission said, quote, governance shortcomings, particularly in the fight against corruption, may also adversely affect the business environment and weigh negatively on investment. In particular, there's a risk of conflict of interest at various levels of government, end quote. Further, it said the Malta police forces economic crimes unit is not adequately staffed according to the report in this context it is important to couple a strengthened legislative framework with timely and thorough implementation said the commission 
Malta has been actively working to create a friendly regulatory regime for the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. To that end, the island's government passed several pieces of legislation last summer that have since seen notable crypto changes such as Binance and OKCoin open offices there. The nation has already been taking some steps to more effectively spot suspect crypto activity. Last month, the the Malta Financial Services Authority announced it would integrate CypherTrace's compliance monitoring product to protect customers, investors, and business partners. The tool uses blockchain analytics and forensics to look for suspicious addresses and wallets, according to CypherTrace's website. The firm says it profiles cryptocurrency exchanges, ATMs, coin mixers, and money laundering systems, as well as known criminal addresses to, store, to score transactions and gauge the level of risk. My God, these people. The MFSA said the system would uh, said the system also de-anonymizes blockchain addresses, allowing regulators to evaluate and monitor the trustworthiness of virtual asset businesses. And I'm calling bullshit on that last. Of course they could, if you're not careful with what you're doing, you know, mix using Wasabi, you know, don't use the same address, you know, if, you know, if you've got one address and, you know, for cold storage or whatever, and you're not adding to it and taking away from it, that seems kind of okay. But if you're actively using it and not hodling, then if you're not careful, then yes, they will be able to de-anonymize you. But the way this is written kind of sounds like, oh, they can de-anonymize everything. And that just is not the case. I'm sorry, guys. So don't, you know, don't fall for that. Just continue being careful. Um, next up is going to be the scope of discovery could influence the outcome of ongoing Tezos litigation. This is by Nelson Rosario and Stephen D. Polly writing June 9th for the block crypto, uh, in, <clears throat> sorry, we've hit our next major milestone in the ongoing saga. That is the Tezos class action litigation previously. SDP wrote about the lead plaintiff issue in CCM number 31. Now we've moved on to the discovery phase of the process, and there is, of course, a dispute. Oh, God. As a reminder, in case you've slept through most of CCM, litigation in the United States allows the parties to do something called discovery in which they can get the other side's documents, written responses to questions, and take depositions. No surprise, people sometimes disagree about the scope of appropriate discovery. This is the bread and butter of litigators and honestly takes up more time than many for many than showing up in court and trying cases. It can be mind-numbingly dull, but also sometimes wins and loses cases. This particular dispute centers around what documents should the defendants in the case be required to produce. In particular, there's a timing dispute. The plaintiffs want all relevant documents for a particular request, regardless of their creation date, and the defendants do not want that. In fact, the defendants think that the only documents created on or before November the 6th, 2017, the date the first Tezos class action lawsuit was filed, should be produced. This particular document was jointly filed by the plaintiffs and the defendants because of a court requirement that the parties try to work out their fights between themselves and where they can't to uh, where they can't to submit a single document to the court explaining their competing positions. The plaintiffs argue that certain documents such as for such as anything related to discussions with regulators are relevant to their case 
in that they help establishment that Tezos ICO was a securities offering under the Howey test. The defendants counter that under the plaintiff's own theory of the case that the Tezos ICO was a securities offering, the plaintiff's request should be denied as the, as the defendants explain, quote, the Ninth Circuit Court has held that the inquiry should be determined at the time of issuance rather than at some subsequent time. And then gives a, a Danner versus Himmelfarb as a, as a citation here, but I won't read all that through it. In other words, only the facts that existed at the time of the purported offering are relevant under plaintiff's own theory. <clears throat> the defendants continue the line of argument, closing the loop by saying the Howey test focuses on the terms of the alleged offer, the plan of distribution, and the economic inducements held out to the prospect. And then another court citation is given. Uh, courts must focus the inquiry on what the purchasers were offered or promised and will conduct an objective inquiry into the character of the instrument or transaction offered based on what the purchasers were led to expect. Okay, so that's going to do it for that. Um, so, yeah, the Tezos dumpster fire is still burning at a, at a fairly rapid clip. But, again, this is one of the reasons why I just don't care about ICOs or altcoins or or anything other than Bitcoin, because I don't want to be holding a bag of, this is when you don't want to be holding a bag of Tezos because God only knows what's going to happen here. I mean, if you are a, a, a diehard trader, you know, that's, that's trading the garbage coin and doing well, well, good for you, but it's not safe for anybody else to have anything to do with Tezos. And in my opinion, anything else, because everything else is not sufficiently decentralized to the point where they can't knock on somebody's door and issue a court order saying you will show up before this judge on this date. If you can provide, a, if somebody can provide a coin that does that, I would be interested, but nobody, nobody's been able to do that, but the creator of Bitcoin. So moving on up the stack. And this is again, why I don't care about ICOs and altcoins and trading. Market availability changes for U.S. customers, June the 21st, 2019. This is Bittrex's announcement. So this, if you're a U.S. customer and you're trading on Bittrex, listen up. It says, effective June 21st, certain markets will no longer be accessible to U.S. customers because nobody wants to do business with us because of our freaking regulations. This change does not affect the availability of these markets on Bittrex International for non-U.S. customers. The following markets will transition to Bittrex International on June 21st, 2019. And then there's like 13 coins like uh, B, like ADT, AMP, BAY, BCTP, Block, Box, CMCT, the, the list goes on. Um, and then after after that, they say U.S. customers will be sent an email communication from Bittrex that provides guidance on what they can and cannot do with their affected token slash coin. They should also say slash worthless bag in connection with this change before an effective market is no longer accessible, including and there's a list of bullet bullet points. Buy or sell tokens in all markets currently available to U.S. customers before the, the change date. Cancel or cancel and replace open orders, With, <clears throat> withdraw assets, 
Okay, so after the change date, here's their bullet points. U.S. customers will not be able to buy or sell the above listed tokens coins. On the change date, our systems will automatically cancel all open orders in your in the effective mar- affected markets for the U.S. customers. U.S. customers may withdraw to or continue to hold in their Bitrix wallet affected token coin for as long as Bitrix International supports a market in those tokens and coins. Non-U.S. customers will be able to access those markets that continue to be listed on Bittrex International. And then it gives a a list of frequently asked questions. But essentially what's going on is that U.S. customers are getting shit-canned out of yet another exchange. Why? Because the SEC and anybody else who has anything to do with regulations um, in the United States apparently have arms so long that they can reach all the way across the world and people just don't want to deal. And I mean, basically, it's just turning United States customers into second class citizens, which is, you know, a shame. I don't trade. I don't think it's healthy to trade, but that's me. Okay. And, and so I don't care, except for the fact that when, you know, this stuff starts spilling outside of just not being able to trade or be able to purchase, you know, coins on Bittrex or whatnot, and it will then, you know, it becomes clear. It's like, I I don't understand why our own regulations are so hardcore that the only option is to shit can an entire nation, uh, you know, from doing it. So the SEC and any other of the other regulators might want to start relaxing their crap. Sorry, I'm just saying. And I know that opens up people to, you know, uh, to be, you know, get defrauded, but I mean, if the only other option is that nobody ever wants to do business with the U.S. customer, I don't see how that's healthy at all. Uh, Okay, again, with regulation, here's another one. This is out of the block, crypto.com. The SEC pursues concerns of fraudulent activity by Longfin Corp. This is by Nelson, uh, Nelson Rosario writing on June the 8th. In many ways, the crypto bull run of 2017 was a once-in-a-lifetime period of Monty Python-esque financial absurdity. Anybody with a dream, anybody, the ability to copy-paste, and a quote-unquote team could raise millions of dollars. Everyone wanted in on blockchain. Startups were launched and existing companies pivoted. However, not all pivots are good ideas. This case involves a company that claimed to pivot, but maybe they didn't. And, well, allegedly not everything they were claiming was true. C'est la vie. For those that don't remember, Longfin Corp. was the company whose stock grabbed an exclusive ticket to the moon after they announced in December 2017 that they had acquired a cryptocurrency company. Apparently, Longfin CEO owned at least 92% of the company they acquired. What did Longfin do that they were pivoting from? Good question. Longfin was a company incorporated in February 2017 that did, uh, well, they didn't really do anything at all. As the complaint alleges, Longfin was a corporate shell that its owner, Mina Valley, yeah, Mina Valley was attempting to get listed on the NASDAQ because reasons. Back in May of 2018, the SEC secured a preliminary injunction against Longfin to freeze their assets while the SEC continued their investigation into whether Longfin had violated securities securities laws. Apparently, if this complaint is to be believed, there was a lot to investigate. This newly filed complaint 
alleges a lot of fraudulent activity by Longfin and the people that ran it. In particular, the SEC is charging them with violations of the anti-fraud provisions of the securities law for basically cooking their books to meet the requirements for being listed on NASDAQ. That's not good. Additionally, Longfin claimed to be a U.S. company so that it could file for a Reg A securities offering, and it looks like it may have actually been an Indian company. As the complaint alleges, quote, Longfin's presence in the United States consisted of an office rented from WeWork, a provider of shared office space, which was staffed by a single 23-year-old individual. End quote. If you get yourself listed on a major stock exchange based off misrepresentations related to your revenue, your corporate location, and whatever it is your company is doing, you're going to have a bad time. Point in fact, there is a parallel criminal case against the CEO in the District of New Jersey having the SEC charge you with fraud and the U.S. Attorney's Office go after you is about as bad as it gets. It's not looking good for Longfin, say la vie. So, yeah, I remember the Longfin saga, and that's, I'm sorry, but that's just funny. I, it, so, I mean, if you've got an SEC that can bitch slap somebody in the middle of Hungary because they sold a hamburger to a United States citizen, I'm pretty sure that lying to the SEC to get listed on an exchange is probably not going to work. Just kind of saying, just, but that's, I mean, it's, the whole long fin thing is, is hilarious. And I can't, I'm still, I have, I have yet to hear any updates on that iced tea company that quote unquote went blockchain and their, their stock had to be halted because they were making like the, this mad gain. I, I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was an, literally an iced tea company and just made an announcement that they were going all in blockchain and I think their stock price like went like 150% or something within like 24 hours and had to get halted. And it was just a big mess. And it turns out it's all bullshit because most stories about blockchain are exactly bullshit. And let's get into some of that because this is another one from the block crypto. This is a st- written by Stephen D. Polly. The SEC and Kick are poised for a battle that could further flesh out securities law for crypto. My opinion is that no, it won't, but let's get into this one. As anyone who follows crypto-related legal developments knows by now, the SEC sued Kick Interactive Incorporated in New York Federal Court on June the 4th. At issue is a 2017 token sale in which Kick sold one kabajillion kin tokens. Okay, only a trillion, but a kabajillion sounded better. Am I right? In one quarter, Kick says the tokens are currency used within its application and controlled by an independent foundation, and that the SEC is engaging in regulatory overreach that is damaging to innovation and outside the scope of its statutory authority. In the other corner, the SEC says the tokens were part of an unregistered securities offering by a software company with lousy revenue, and which saw an ICO as a Hail Mary tactic to save it from going, going the way of all flesh. In a press release announcing the lawsuit, it also says that companies do not face binary choice between innovation and compliance with the federal securities law. And in a competing press release, Kick said that they knew this was going to happen and they are itching for a fight to make the world safe for blockchain. Uh, it's going to be hard to read the rest of this because this whole Kick thing is embarrassing. L- literally very, very embarrassing. 
The SEC lawsuit is a meaty 49-page pleading full of quotes from Kick's internal emails, social media posts, and presentations, a number of which were preserved for posterity on YouTube. It's a good read if you're into this sort of thing, and you get the feeling that the SEC lawyers who wrote it enjoyed themselves. One of my personal favorite quotes is from a June 2017 email in which a Kick employee wrote to another discussing cartoon stickers that Kick had designed. The whole point is to make our legal department happy, not the users who are actually investors and probably could care less that they got a sticker pack for their $10,000 investment into Ken. There's also a startup cash in sell out bro down feel to some of it, though that certainly doesn't mean any violate anyone violated any laws. If you're a litigator, you know from experience that clients say regrettable things via email and and that these regrettable things often show up in court filings. One of the many interesting things about this case is that the lawsuit was filed after a formal SEC investigation that involved documents, subpoenas, and witness interviews. This isn't the way ordinary litigation happens. Usually, you don't know what is in the other side's files until after the lawsuit has been filed and discovery has been done. Here, the SEC has already seen the other side's files and liberally threaded contents from it through through this lawsuit. I'm going to resist the temptation to provide an an exegesis of the suit with any more of my favorite quotes because, well, there are honestly too many. And the fact of the matter is that well-drafted lawsuits generally always sound bad. If you want to read things, it's a great read. You can find a copy of it here, and there's a link. I will, I will also direct you to my internal tweet storm about the case, which includes a best of section, which you can find here. I also can't tell you for sure who's going to win. On one hand, it does look really bad for Kick on a first pass. The pleading is a parade of horribles in which Kick person, personal, personnel use language referring to Ken as an investment opportunity multiple times. Some of these statements are by people whose statements can probably be imputed to the company <clears throat> and this and thus considered party opponent statements for purposes of the federal rules of evidence. This means that the statements aren't hearsay and can be used as substantive proof and treated as admissions. On the other hand, Kick has solid defense lawyers who wrote an impressive and persuasive <clears throat> Wells submission. They will argue that the C- SEC has switched together <clears throat> an, ir- an irrelevant narrative of cherry-picked facts and statements that do not overcome the fact that the tokens were and are currency with legit- legitimate use in the Kick ecosystem. They will also surely argue that the fact that Kick looking for new revenue sources is hardly a sign or a sign of any sort of bad intent. If creating a new product violates the securities act, it's time to say goodbye to innovation and capitalism. You get the idea. They will also pound on the law hard. I can hear the argument and depending on the judge you draw and the quality of the litigators, it's not laughable. They may also have some good arguments for motion practice that we haven't seen yet. So it looks bad, but it's a mistake to conclude that this is a sure loser. If I were handicapping it, I'd give Kick at best a 15 to 20% shot of winning on, on the merits. My prediction is that whatever these folks have to say publicly, there is still a solid chance the thing ultimately settles. Most cases do. Okay, so that's pretty much where, where they are on the Kick thing. And those emails, you know... Uh, those don't look good. I mean, you know, and they were, it just doesn't. And the whole kick thing is 
you can almost just tell by the language in some of those emails um, that the people that were, that are working at kick are just like, they might as well have just said, man, our rubes are, are loaded with, with bags of money. Let's go get them. They might as well have just come out and said that in my opinion. And, but in either event, the whole kick fiasco is, is going to be a quadriga CX um, and Mount Gox type of thing where it, God only knows how long it'll take for this stuff to go away. I hope we, I hope it just actually goes away before, you know, we stop hear, hearing about it. And then maybe four years later, um, they finally actually settle and we, and we all sit back and go, we, we don't really care because I don't think this is all that important at all. All right, so Binance and Coinbase traffic soar amid 14-month high Bitcoin volume. All right, so this is out of Bitcoinist.com. And it says, May saw a surge in traffic to some key cryptocurrency exchanges as Bitcoin trading volumes on Binance and Coinbase hit a 14-month high. Most likely, United States President Donald Trump's trade wars, Brexit turmoil, and the specter of a looming world recession are propelling excitement in the cryptocurrency market. As a result, website traffic on major exchanges such as Binance and Coinbase soared in May 2019. Bitcoin exchanges' popularity continues to soar. For example, data from similar web shows the cryptocurrency exchange Binance had over 42 million visits in May. Similarly, Coinbase, the largest U.S.-based Bitcoin exchange, received over 35 million visits. Most importantly, however, money is flooding into the exchanges as many of these visits were materialized in trades for about $5.9 billion U.S. in May 2019. For example, on May 16th, volume on Coinbase hit a 14-month high with over 47,400 BTC, roughly $376 million U.S., traded as the, as the chart provided by Bitcoinetry shows below, and it's just a chart. <clears throat> Economic woes are pushing Bitcoin trading volumes, particularly across Latin America. Countries such as Chile, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, Argentina show strong volume surges during the last few weeks, according to data provided by local Bitcoins. In April, when the U.S. threatened to cut remittances made by illegal Mexicans, Mexico saw Bitcoin volume record eyes. Most recently, Mexico was under a U.S. trade war threat. Fortunately, these threats have now receded after Mexico agreed to take action to stem the flow of Central American immigrants into the U.S. Most notably, although Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro admits his ignorance about the cryptocurrency, Brazil holds the record for most Bitcoin trades executed on a single day in Latin America. According to CoinTrader Monitor, 100,000 Bitcoins were traded on April the 10th, 2019. Argentina, with whom the Brazilian cryptocurrency illiterate is reportedly mulling about establishing a single currency in the South American region, also continues to see steady increases in Bitcoin trading volumes. The month of May also showed Bitcoin derivatives exchange BitMEX set a new record of $10 billion U.S. traded in a single day. Say that again, people. In May... Bitcoin derivatives exchange BitMEX saw a new record of $10 billion U.S. 
traded in a single day. But centralized crypto exchanges aren't the only ones seeing a boom in traffic. Interest from institutional investors are also is also skyrocketing. CME Bitcoin futures, for example, set a record high volume at the end of May with an open interest of 5,190 contracts. One contract equals five BTC. So, man, there you go. Uh, it... Although the thing that sucks about that is that they're going to local Bitcoins. Um, And it's not that I don't like local Bitcoins. It's just that now I'm not sure if we're going to be able to, you know, how much longer we're going to be able to monitor local Bitcoins to see what kind of volume we're getting in, uh, you know, third world, uh, third world, second world countries, because they're, they've, pulled, you know, and I've talked about this before that, you know, recently they pulled the uh, ability for people to trade or go find some other person to meet up with in meet space and, and actually trade cash for Bitcoin. So these may be the last local Bitcoin uh, data that actually may show anything, but boy, howdy, does it show a hell of a lot. Um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, this is out of Coin Telegraph by Patrick Thompson, writing yesterday, June 9th, 2019. What is a Satoshi? The smallest unit on the Bitcoin blockchain? Question mark. From paying for pizza with Satoshi, SAT, on the Lightning Network to the 10,000 Satoshis being added to the Lightning Torch each time it passed, down to the one sat per byte rate on the Bitcoin, uh, on the BSV network. No, wrong already, people wrong. There are no Satoshis on BSV because it's not Bitcoin. It's scam coin. That's all it is. It's a scam. If you're holding a bag of this BSV, run away, run away. Okay. So we're going to try that again to each time it has passed down to the one BSV decimal per byte rate on the BSV network. SAT is being used more and more in blockchain and crypto conversations. The Satoshi is the smallest unit that is recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. You guys have to really watch out, man. Cointelegraph is not exactly being your friend here because it actually says the phrase, let me read what it actually says. The Satoshi is the smallest unit that is recorded on the Bitcoin blockchains, plural. Uh, no, there is only one Bitcoin blockchain. Just because you fork it and name it Bitcoin something something doesn't make it Bitcoin. It's not, and I'm sorry, but all if if it's BCH or B Gold or B Rhodium or this shitcoin BSV, it's all crap. It's all, I haven't even redeemed any of the other forks because I'm just, I'm not, I don't care. I just don't give a shit. It's not worth my time and neither is BSV. I really wish Cointelegraph would get their shit together and stop doing this. <clears throat> one Satoshi represents a decimal, seven zeros and a one followed by the Bitcoin ticker. In other words, 0.00000001 or 1 times 10 to the minus 8th in scientific notation. SAT is becoming more common in day-to-day blockchain and cryptocurrency conversations. Bitcoin mining software like Honeyminer pay your mining reward in SAT. 
hashtag stacking sats is a hashtag used frequently on Twitter, and the lightning torch was accounted for in Satoshi's, just to name a few instances of the word being used. But many, especially those who are new to blockchain and cryptocurrency, may be seeing these current events that evolve, <clears throat> that, in, that involve the sat and asking themselves, what is a Satoshi? When we say Satoshi, we're actually not referring to Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin. However, the Satoshi we refer to similarly goes back to the early days of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin Talk Forum. It all began on November the 15th, 2010, when Bitcoin Talk user Rybuck proposed that one one hundredth of a Bitcoin, the smallest unit that could be displayed on the interface at the time, be called a Satoshi. Although Rybuck made the proposal, none of the other users on the Bitcoin Talk forum affirmed or denied his proposal. This may have been because the thread at hand <clears throat> was a poll where voting took place regarding the best Unicode character for Bitcoin, which has nothing to do with a unit of account, therefore may, may have made Rybuck's comment look out of place. However, when Rybuck joined in on the Unicode thread, he entered with the question, what's the plan for subdividing Bitcoin? Do we go in thousands like the metric system, millibits, microbits, nanobits? It was a good question, but a question that nobody was willing to answer, confirm, or deny. As a result, the idea expired, and there was no action taken regarding Rybuck's proposal, at least not at first. Three months later, on February the 10th, 2011, Rybuck made a similar comment regarding the unit of account denominations, but this time around, Rybuck's comment felt more at home in a thread titled, More Divisibility Required, Move the Decimal Point. This time, when Rybuck joined the discussion, he got feedback eight days later in an entirely new thread entitled BitSent, in which Bitcoin talk user Colbus decided it was time to think about smaller monetary units recorded on Bitcoin's blockchain. On the BitSent thread, a user commented, reinstating Rybuck's initial proposal. The user said, one Satoshi equals one micro BitSent. 100 million Satoshis equals one Bitcoin. Are we agreed? To which another user replied affirmative. And after that, it was all said and done. Uh, one times 10 to the negative eighth, the smallest unit that could be recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain became known as a Satoshi from that moment forward. So a little bit of history, even though it was a stumbling mess because I'm trying to correct their Idiot Cointelegraph's pure idiocy in including anything other than BTC as part, as some kind of like, you know, cousin of, uh, or some kind of Bitcoin family or some such, because it's nonsense, absolute nonsense. And the last piece of nonsense is that Dubai real estate department signs a memorandum of understanding with telecom firm to implement blockchain. The Dubai land department and telecom firms Etisalat have signed a memorandum of understanding concerning real estate blockchain technology. United Arab Emirates based outlet Gulf Today reported on June the 10th. The DLD works under the Executive Council of Dubai and real estate related services, while Etisalat is a multinational Emirati firm that serves 15 countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. Both parties have said they aim to implement smart government standards, whatever that is, and introduce paperless management and digital contracts for property transactions. Sultan Bouti bin Mirjan, DLD's director general, said the agreement is part of an ambition to make Dubai the smartest city in the world. Gulf Today notes that the MOU has a goal of improving registration and verification processes, speeding up transactions while keeping all parties involved safe. 
As reported by Cointelegraph, a blockchain platform built by one of the United Arab Emirates two telecom operators was officially endorsed by the government back in April. Last month, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance released a report detailing several blockchain use cases relevant to the real estate industry. The reported report stated that the technology has the potential to make land registries trustless, increase transparency, and make it easier to transfer properties. And you don't need any of that. I'm sorry. A long time ago, I was kind of thinking along these ways, but it just, no, because the land can be seized. It doesn't matter if it's on a blockchain or not. It does not matter. It's just, if somebody, if I have like a section of, you know, 640 acres of like really good land and a whole shit ton of people with a couple of tanks and a bunch of guns come across my land, the blockchain is, is not any help. Okay, stop doing this kind of stuff. So that's the last of the stupid, and that will do it for your morning roundup. Vital statistics out of bitinfocharts.com shows Bitcoin at an average price of 7,946. The high is going to be over at Simex at 7,992. The low is going to be out at HitBTC. Yeah, HitBTC at 7,918. So fairly tight, uh, fairly tight uh, trading price there. 325,000 transactions were made over the last 24 hours uh, at right around 13,500 transactions per hour on average with a total of 1.2 million uh, Bitcoins being sent in that last 24 hours and an average cent per hour of 50,000 BTC. Average transaction value is 3.7 BTC. The median transaction value has kind of dropped to 0.015 BTC or about 122 bucks. That's about, that's less than half of what I normally like to see. Uh, I've been, uh, for some reason or other, I like it when it's like right around 300. That just seems like just fine to me. Block time is low, pegged right at nine minutes, zero seconds. <clears throat> half a Bitcoin per block is being taken, or on a per block basis is being taken in fees, and 88.5 BTC have been taken in fees over the last 24 hours. Hash rate has increased by 12.3%, and we are just over 55, uh, 56 exahashes per second. The last time uh, the code was updated in Bitcoin Core was two days ago on the 8th. Ethereum is at 243, Litecoin is at 126, Bcash is at 391, BSV is at 189, Ethereum Classic is at 8 and a third. Dogecoin is is holding at 0.0031. Nice. Uh, however, it is not going to beat neither uh, the 46,000 transactions or 51,000 transactions over the last 24 hours of Bcash and BSV, respectively. But it's still stable, man. It's usually around 27, you know, 30, 20, anywhere between 25 and 32,000 transactions. So Doge marches on. <laughs> That'll do it for Vitals. All right, Satoshi's treasure. Uh, the room key dropped. Uh, and the clue, well, 
the clue is is just basically a, a, a movie poster uh, in my room, and you know, kanji's written all over it. You know, it's it's an interesting piece of art. Um, again, I have no idea, in hope in hell of, of deciphering that myself. Uh, and but it's interesting to watch. So this is also um, un, has gone unsolved clearly because it was just dropped yesterday on Sunday, like 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 it always is. And let's get a read on with the other keys here. It looks like the Earth key is is still unknown. The Audubon key is unknown. The Clan key is unknown, and of course the Room key is unknown. The Aesop key did get solved. Okay, so there we are. We've got what's like eleven keys and. Four of them are not found. Nice. Nice. Okay. So there's Satoshi's treasure. And let's just go ahead. I'm going to keep this today is going to be a short, uh, shorter show. I'm going to get right in. I'm not going to do a joke and, and we're going to do a couple of other things. We won't have a song, but the daily train wrecked. Here you go. <sighs> the daily train wreck today is brought to you by Ryan X. Charles. And he tweets out on June the 8th, 2019, we will help governments collect taxes. Seriously, people, what is wrong with this? He didn't used to talk like this. In fact, you know, and I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it up to Roger Ver at this point. And I know, I know it's hard to do it. But at least when it comes to this kind of shit, because he replied, or actually he didn't reply, he retweeted uh, Ryan's tweet and uh, basically, you know, lambasting him, saying he's going to help, you know, uh, he's like, we're going to help people not get robbed or something like that. So at least from that standpoint, he's never kind of changed his, his tune. But all the people that are wrapped themselves around Craig, the CSW clown ass guy, um, somehow or another, they're all starting to talk the same way that this, this is, we need to be regulated and there need to be laws and anonymity is bad. And all the things that are antithetical to Bitcoin, it, they're really easy to spot now, people, if you're, you know, like if you're doing some bird watching and trying to figure out who the, figure out who the scum is when they start talking like this, write them off. Ryan didn't used to talk like this. He used to talk more like Roger Ver used to talk or more like the anarchist or the voluntarist or the libertarians. Now it's which with these guys, it's whichever way the wind's blowing. And that's just sad. Anyway, that's going to do it for your daily train wrecked. And I'm going to go ahead and give the outro. Now I appreciate you guys listening to me. Um, I hope you guys have a really good week. Uh, you know, enjoy the bump in Bitcoin because you never know when it's when we're going to bark that thing out um, and enjoy the rest of your week. And I'll see you guys on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.